Coming up next, a book I've been so excited to litigate, and that is not a joke. It is the book of the Dun Cow. Hey everybody, welcome to The Bookening, coming to you from Top Secret Studio B. This is Nathan, your humble and obedient host. I'm being joined by none other than the scholar who's a baller of reading, right there, or books. His name is Brandon Chastain. We also call him Ghost Brandon. Ooh, how you doing there, GB? Yeah? Doing really well. I'm glad to know that Ghost Brandon came back. Oh, Ghost Brandon always comes back, baby. That's oh, why yeah, we call him Ghost Brandon. Hey, speaking of Ghost Brandon, did you see that Gozer the Gozerian left us a review? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Read it. Yeah. Oh, you guys should look it up. One of you look it up. It's great. All right. I'm looking it up right now, baby. <laughs> it's a one star. It's a one star. Oh, no. <laughs> did we mangle another fact? Oh, um, we didn't mangle a fact. We just stepped on his precious ego or something. Uh oh. Well, hey, that's a. Whoops, I just played an episode of the book. This is not... Oh, oh no. Goes to the Gazarian, does not like our show. Cruel, ignorant, <laughs> 80s tele- televangelism comes... Whoa. What? 80s televangelism, huh? Oh, this is the... Maybe the, the wow. most... This is the greatest and also stupidest review we've ever had. Oh, really? <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Goes to the Gazarian. Well, I... I'm not Sorry. Let's read this. I, I'm just yeah, excited that we got a review from Gozer the Gozerian. <laughs> By the way, Jake is the pastor who's a master of... Hey, that's me. Jake. And uh, you are featured in a cruel, ignorant 80s televangelism. And then the sentence that he tried to write cuts off. Uh, quote, listen to Peter Kreeft's podcast to understand till we have faces, parentheses, T-W-H-F, close parentheses. Listen to these guys to understand how Kenneth Copeland would sound if he practiced millennial up-talking, and forced himself to speak in a soft tone and slow, quote, intellectual, unquote, pace. These guys accuse C.F. <laughs> Lu- this is this is This is one of my favorite bad reviews we've gotten in a while. This is amazing. I mean, this is, we're always a slow intellectual pace here. Yeah, that's what we're known for is our slow intellectual pace. That's what we're known for. Right. Let's see. These guys accuse C.S. Lewis of spreading a, quote, false gospel in T.W.H.F. They say they think Lewis may really be a pagan instead of a creed Christian. TWHF is a book set in pre-Christian times. The protagonist is a polytheist who is shown to come to theism. The book is written in an ancient Greek style. It's subtle and requires multiple readings. These are people who see the Bible as a book of spells. For them... <laughs> this is a real stream of consciousness. This is somebody stuff. who doesn't know how to read. For them... The Bible is a book. These are people who see the Bible as a book of spells. For them, the Bible is a book of rules. And if you know the Bible, biblical rules and spells well enough, then you use them to manipulate people and even God. People who see the Bible as a tool to be used to control God and manipulate people will not like TWHF. This podcast's analysis of TWHF. 
HF leads me to believe that the hosts believe in the Bible as a book of spells. Oh Don't listen to these guys. This is like a uh, sort of a <laughs> some fifteen-year-old literal sophomore in high school wrote this review. Don't listen to these. They guys. think they're really smart. They, they are probably cannot. are really smart and will be really smart someday and come b- and back and be ashamed of themselves. And I mean, I'm just going to give them the most possible credit in the world and say this person is a very precocious fourteen-year-old who's going to hate themselves for writing that review <laughs> in about ten years. You're giving them the benefit of the doubt there. I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> some a 33 year old, year old. <laughs> in their mother's basement <laughs> that's the alternative reading and, I, and so I grant uh, that that is maybe the more likely reading I'm imagining if you give me your address I'm going to send you some wet naps to wipe the Cheeto dust off your keyboard wow <laughs> we're going to send you some we're going to send you some man wipes so that you can uh, compensate for the fact that you haven't taken a shower in two weeks <laughs> <laughs> uh, hit a stick of deodorant <laughs> You guys are really dunking on poor Gozer the Gozerian here. All he wanted he to do was... He deserves it. I mean, I'm wor- the I'm worried he might try to... of that, that take is just... Well, I didn't read the last sentence, so I should finish this up. Oh, finish they it, are please. Kenneth Copeland fundamentalists impersonating reasonable millennials. <laughs> he got us. <laughs> you know, it's true. It's, it's, it's really true. We're about we as are... Kenneth Copeland-esque as it can possibly get. I mean, you guys, you guys remember when I when I pitched this podcast, we need to disguise our <laughs> Kenneth Copelandia as Millennial reasonable millennialism. Talk. Yeah. He got us. I mean, yeah. I am I am wearing a Kenneth Copeland shirt right now. <laughs> and I'm wearing a double-breasted purple suit. Yep. Is that the kind of thing Kenneth Copeland would wear? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I guess this was the form of our destruction. <laughs> he got us. Stay puff marshmallow man. I hope Gozer is back in force with style in this new Ghostbusters movie. I hope he's mad about our podcast. I hope that's the <laughs> I hope plot. He is, of, I hope he can't. I hope that's the reason he's back because he had to destroy the beginning. <laughs> destroy Kenneth Copeland fundamentalists impersonating reasonable millennials. <laughs> that would be awesome. Oh, that should be our T-shirt right there. Kenneth Copeland fundamentalists. Somebody needs to draw. Gozer the Gozerian <laughs> destroying Kenneth Copeland, like sicking the dogs on him. It has oh, to man, be that, Kenneth that Copeland would be with awesome, like, like a like a Stranger Things sort of shirt with Gozer the Gozerian over the th- three of us down in a, a field or something. Yeah, but, but awesome. we're wearing purple suits. Yeah, and I the think, dogs are coming. Yeah, yep. Like we that. need that. We need that art for su- su- Top Secret Studio. Be at the very least somebody. Yeah. We hang all your artwork up in our studio, and uh, I'm we should probably right put, I don't know if we've put pictures up, but we have it all up, and so you should send us send us this stuff. It'll make our wall of fame. Yeah, totally. If you send it high-res enough, it might just be a t-shirt. Yeah, no. I or would. if you give us permission, we'll make it some kind of other, excuse me, reward for other people. Yeah, a, a poster, a art. Print, we'll make a poster uh, and send it to patrons, something like that. I don't know. I would love to have that poster, though. Yeah, and I would love anything that exposed us as the Kenneth Copeland fundamentalists impersonating reasonable millennials that we are. This review oh is it, just in terms of the style of it is one of my favorite reviews. It's kind. It's kind of does this circular thing where it keeps coming back to the same points and this book. No, this this review. Oh. Hmm. It's, this review it's, is, yeah, it's a work of art. 
How do you say that word? It's almost chiastic or chiastic. Chiastic, or, yeah. Chiastic, I was going to say yeah. sort of like Hebrew poetry, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's um, the heart of the chiasm? What's at the center? Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland. The most, <laughs> the central aspect of this. Uh, no, actually, Kenneth Copeland is the most outer. It's, it starts as Kenneth ends. Copeland, and then it comes back at the end to We Are Kenneth Copeland. But So where what's the dead center of it, then? It goes Kenneth Copeland till we have faces. Goes to the Gozerian. Kenneth Copeland, till we have faces, his explanation of the Bible as the way we, that we see the, the Bible as a book of spells, that's the center. And then it goes back to, yeah, to Kenneth Copeland and then to till we have faces. And then Kel- anyway, it's a beautiful masterpiece of <laughs> this. This might be one of my favorite bad reviews we've ever gotten. I'm, you are. It is very, it is chiastic. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is, br- this is brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, how many uh, stars out of five do you give to Gozer the Gozerian's review? Of I the mean, book? seven S- stars are stars are not good enough for this. <laughs> yeah, mean, we're no. talking about parallel dimensions here, so it's out yeah. of this galaxy. <laughs> it is out of this galaxy. This review is quite literally out of this it's galaxy. A, it's a event of biblical proportions. Uh, cats and dogs, cats and dogs together. together. Mass hysteria. Yeah. <sighs> Speaking of mass hysteria, me and Jake. Described the mass hysteria that took place when people visited Walter Wangaria's birthplace and all that sort of thing last week. And we, Wait, were having is, little, we did, yeah. Is there we were, mass hysteria? I mean, no, we were having a lot oh. of fun. <laughs> you didn't listen to um, our masterpiece? No, <laughs> sorry, guys. We had a very long and very silly and very enjoyable riff about how popular Walter Wangeren is in Evansville and how people... <laughs> guess, you guys did not that. realize that he... <laughs> no, we didn't. That's the point. That's that's <laughs> what I'm... <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, that hadn't happened yet. You know? Yeah. Oh, it had happened. Yeah, well, we did Sorry. not realize it until we were done that we were mocking the recently deceased. But, you know, we are cruel, ignorant, 80s televangelist-style people. And um, petty and misogynistic. We've been called right. cruel twice now by reviewers. <laughs> little so we're we just cruel oh man we got a lot of oh. people just i imagine there's a whole bunch of people out there just crying while they listen to <laughs> us a lot of hurt feelings out there <laughs> yeah. guys you know you can just uh hit the uh stop button and mm-hmm. walk away if we hurt your feelings or you can cry your fat tears <laughs> over the fact that you're wrong right and then get right yeah this is what you can do cry your tears into little vials and then mail them and Brandon will drink <laughs> your tears. That's right. Live on the internet. Live on the internet. Sure. We will over his actual book of spells. Over his actual book of spells. We'll drink some tears. Yeah. Baby. Hit me, baby, one more time. <laughs> <laughs> Is Britney Spears back in the house? <laughs> oh hey guys. <laughs> it's me, hey, Britney Spears. It's Fat Alplane. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's been a while, guys. Hey, Fat Outplane, how's it going, buddy? It's it's going real good, Nathan. <laughs> Did you know that you're? This is a cruel, ignorant '80s televangelism show that we're doing. Or are you talking about the booking in? <laughs> yeah, of course. That's my favorite show. I love cruel, petty, misogynistic. What was the other thing? Televangelist. <laughs> Televangelist. That's right. Well, I'm glad, Fat Outplane. Anything? You, you up to anything <laughs> cool right now? You doing oh, well? Oh, you know, just flying around. Dropping off some mail. You guys ready to give your uh, baggage? Yeah, sure. Yeah. We're doing everything right, out of order. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks. great. I, I got to go, guys. Okay, bye, Goodbye, Fat Get, get on, Brittany. 
Bye, bye guys. <laughs> hey, what uh, I miss? <laughs> yeah, Fat Alplane showed up. Oh and, man, uh, I never seem to get to see him. Yeah, Brandon Britney Spears hopped runs on to the bathroom. Oh, away, yeah. Too bad. Anyhow, awesome. good stuff. Anyway, a Fat Alplane came through, which means we have to say our baggage, even though we haven't even done our context. But uh, <laughs> I think me and Jake kind of talked about our baggage last time. Jake's baggage is that Walter Wengeren wrote this book in Evansville, and I had no idea whatsoever until we actually i had a conversation with tim bailey my former senior pastor and boss of sorts um and he told me about how he and his wife mary lee considered moving into a commune type situation an intentional christian community with led by walter wengeren down in evansville and they came down and visited him and decided that he was just a little too weird for them and that's how I learned that this book was written in Evansville. Sorry to disappoint you guys if you bought into our riff. Last week, I had no idea growing up in Evansville that was the hometown novelist hero. Hometown hero. He's really heroes. nice. He's just not. That's like nobody really cares. Well, he's one of those guys that's very popular among those who like him. I guess everyone yeah. who's popular. I mean, he did win the National Book Award. Yeah, I'm not saying that there aren't people here who care. I'm just saying... For science fiction, of all things. For what book? Science fiction. Uh, I know the genre, but what what book? Oh, for the one we're talking about today. For Book of the Duncow? Yeah. Huh. This isn't really much of a science fiction book in my... That's why I sounded... Yeah, that's why I did. it is fantasy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it was something. science fiction and fantasy. Well, okay, yeah. My baggage, I said it last time, is that somebody gave me the Book of God when I was a kid because it was the Bible's a novel and I was into novels and things. And I tried reading it and I didn't really like it very much. And that is my entire experience with Walter Wangren. Brandon, your when, baggage? When did, you, when did you try reading this? The Book of God? Oh, uh, I thought you said the Book of the Dunkel. No, no, no. The Book of God was his The Bible as a Novel which was uh, one of Wangeren's more, I don't know if it was actually one of his more popular things, but it was certainly one that got a lot of press and that he did the tours for and did the talk shows, whatever the Christian equivalent of that is. It was, they were pushing it pretty, Zondervan was pushing it pretty hard, but back in 95 or 96. And so I got a copy for Christmas. I tried reading it. I did not find it to be a vast improvement upon the actual Bible, nor did I find it to be much of a, novel it kind of split the difference it tried to cover a lot of biblical ground and add some more detail but not enough to actually make it all that it it, it did not do the thing that even a silly book like two from galilee or a movie like prince of egypt can do where they take one bible story or one bible character and they kind of imaginatively try to fill in the details and i don't really appreciate that sort of thing when it's about Jesus. And I don't know that I appreciate it that much when it's about anyone else from the Bible, but I can enjoy, I've, I enjoy Prince of Egypt and stuff like that. But Walter Wangren did this weird thing where it was like, it's the story of Abraham and I'm describing things and giving it a little bit more detail, but I'm not really bringing all that much extra depth to it. I don't know. It was weird. It was a weird crossbreed of a book and I didn't think it was a very successful experiment. This was, I was probably 10 though when I read it. <laughs> so that's my wangering baggage and were those your thoughts when you were 10 about it yeah those are some pretty advanced thoughts for a 10 year old well i was a pretty smart guy yeah. i'm a i am a as a cruel as since i am actually just kenneth Co copeland impersonating a reasonable millennial oh hello jake's cat 
I, I wouldn't have been able to articulate it that way. I just had this weird, the weird feeling that this doesn't really work as like the Bible and it doesn't really work as a novel. So what is it? Not something that I want to finish reading. So it just felt like a weird failed experiment to me. Vaguely interesting, but Bible storybook for adults, neither yes. here nor there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't condensing it or providing much additional illumination. Anyway, I repeat myself. That's my experience with Walter Wangerin. I should also say he's just one of those names that pops up if you're if you grew up in the right sort of evangelical circles, then your home was always full of the Christian booksellers catalog. And as somebody who loved books, I would look at it just just like many public school families grew up with scholastic catalogs. And so there's just yep. certain titles that you're aware of, even if you never read them, you just you saw the cover and you read the little blurb over and over and over again. Walter Wengeren was kind of, was one of those for me. Oh, there he is. It's Walter Wengeren. I don't really know what he does or who he is, but I know he's <laughs> a person that they think they can sell books of. So that's my baggage. Brandon, what is your baggage with old Walt? Really nothing. Other than my brother read this book a while ago and said that he really enjoyed it. And I never did. I never followed up on him saying that maybe I should read it. But he also didn't press too hard. I just, this just having, do people know that this book was recommended that we read? This is one of our donor books. Yes, I think me and Jake mentioned it and we might as well just say it. It was, this was, I'm just going to say it. I don't think he'll mind. This is our good friend of the show and don- donor, Jay. Who is Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese and also C.S. Lewis, including Till We Have Faces. Maybe Jay is Gozer the, Bar- the Gozerian. It's Maybe possible. he left that review. He is a big T- TWHF fan. No, I, this, is, this was a Jay and Katie special. And if, I, if memory serves, it's been a while since the correspondence, but I think this was a particularly something that Jay was excited for us to do. Because I, I talked to Jay a little bit about this, and he was like, oh, boy, I hope you guys aren't going to be too jerky to this book. And I told him, I don't think so, but maybe I I liked reading it. I'm not sure what I think of it. I, I will say, just to offer a little hook for these podcasts, I really don't know what I think about this book. And I have intentionally put off figuring it out in my mind because it was it was a bizarre experience, this book. It was. But anyways, so one Jay recommended that we read this. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, yeah, I've heard of this before. Kind of like that. Yeah. But beyond that, never read Walt. Never had reason to read Walt, really. Mm-hmm. So Well, there you go. So you bring no baggage. No baggage. Were you aware of his existence or was this just like? Not really, not too much. This was an area. So Jeremy got into science fiction and fantasy more than I did. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think maybe somebody recommended it to him. You would have to be in a particular world with to have had this book recommended to you. Mm-hmm. Jeremy did, and it was no, one of those things. Not like I don't listen to what Jeremy recommends I read, but it was more just one of those passing things where he said, I like this book, and he said, it's about Chaucer. And so, I was like, oh, that sounds kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And then I just never got around to reading it. He is the dark-hooded lord of death, after all. You gotta listen to he that is. guy if he has a suggestion. That's right. Well. Speaking of suggestions, I suggest that you, Brandon, as the contextual Texan from Texas who provides context, provide some context on this work, The Book of the Duncow by Walter Wengeren. Yeah. Well, you guys have already talked a little bit about him, haven't you? I mean, we talked about the fact that he lived in Evansville (laughs) and spun a 
big mythology out of it for like <laughs> 20 minutes and really tickled ourselves pink which i know and is what people <laughs> tune into the podcast is to hear self-satisfied jerks laugh about somebody who just died <laughs> yeah yeah he did just die two weeks ago which so. again we, we did we not know about, we talked about the people of evansville pro- pro- protesting madonna for I think she failed to visit the bones of cockatrice when she was here. <laughs> she failed, yeah, she failed to visit the bones of the rooster that inspired cockatrice. Mm-hmm. And so the people of Evansville protested her. And we talked about the tourism industry and Wang in, yeah. in Wangerin. We talked about artifacts and fake artifacts that are sold under Wangerin's name. The, the pieces very- of how the pieces of uh, Walter Wangerin's childhood home that are being sold around the city when put together <laughs> could build a skyscraper. Yeah, 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 yeah. We just we just had a grand old time <laughs> mocking the idea that people would be excited about Walter Wanger and we were very pleased with ourselves as, as we Yeah, were. I can tell. Well he died <laughs> two weeks ago. So well done guys. Uh, maybe we are cruel. Maybe we should just cop to it. <laughs> I think we might be. <laughs> we, we, we might just be cruel. <laughs> huh. uh, uh, well. We did not know that he had just died. We had no idea. And again, I don't think I hate this book. I think I might like this book. I don't know. It's a it's, weird book. Look, it is a really well-written mythological sort of thing that really is. I don't know anything quite like it. And it has some of the best action I've ever read in my life. Yeah. And so it's got a lot going for it and it's super compelling. It is very easy to read and be sucked into for me. Yeah. Really enjoyed the reading of it a lot. I did too. I did too. I, no, I'm I, not sure that I loved how it ended or the moral of the story. In fact, I'm pretty sure I didn't love it. Yeah. The moral but of the story. Yeah. Insofar as there is one. I I can't deny though that Man, the book was just really fun and well-written and did a great job of drawing me in and taking me, involving me in another world and doing the same sorts of things in a weird way that Watership Down did of not being a farmhouse book like I was mm-hmm. afraid it would be, but being sort of uh, transcending that, but getting way more mythological than Watership Down. But then the mystical, mythological elements of it well, they're worth talking about. And then the way it all ended, um, and the way that our hero, Shades of Clear, deals with things at the end. And I'm just not, I get it, but I'm not sure that I like it. Yeah, we'll talk about it. And it's, we, we got to get this context first. But yes, I think you have summed it up nicely. I also feel like maybe Jay was, I don't want to say trolling us a little bit, but he wanted to, he is famously Jay who loves. None other than Till We Have Faces. Yeah, this is the most Till We Have Faces-ish book. book. since Till We Have Faces. Since Till We, we Have Faces. So, yeah, I yeah. think there may be, have been a little bit of a troll job or a little bit of a, I'm going to press you guys to go back into this sort of mythological gray area world mm-hmm. that I love to be in and that clearly makes you guys uncomfortable. Let's keep teasing that out. Yeah. Well, and I have some more thoughts, but... Yeah, let's let's get our we 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 activated the great t- contextual Texan, and then we haven't let him terminate his mission here. So yeah, well, as you guys have 
already talked about, he lived where you guys are at in Evansville for a while. And he actually taught in Valparaiso University up until his death. I'm pretty sure he was teaching there up until his death, at least. But anyways, it's in Valparaiso, Indiana, which is also not too far from where we're at. Mm-hmm. So, so it's the opposite of the, of the state from where we're at. Well, not too far. I, I don't think of the state as very big because I have to go all over it anyways. Yeah. In the cosmic yeah. sense, it's... In the like, cosmic sense, yeah. Nothing. Yeah. But he was born. He wasn't yes. born in... The universe is... Ver- the cosmos is a very big place. That's my favorite Calvin and Hobbes comic strip. I'm sorry, Brandon. But my favorite Calvin and Hobbes comic strip is Calvin is doing a test. And the, the question is, what was the significance of the Battle of Waterloo? And Calvin writes, in the cosmic sense, probably nil. And <laughs> it, it cuts to him. Walking into the principal's office, Miss <laughs> Wormwood looks sad and depressed. It's just a good little comic. And one that I didn't really understand when I was a kid, and then I had kind of got it once, so it's always, it's always yeah. stuck with me. Anyway, there you go. I'm sure people are laughing over that hilarious Calvin and Hobbes. We should just do Calvin and Hobbes sometime. Um, that would be fun. Yeah, that'd be so fun. Here, I'm really curious. Did you guys really find that he had based this book on a rooster in Evansville, or did you guys make that up? No, we made that. No, up. we made it up. We made everything. <laughs> well, what's fun? What well, he did live on a farm for a the while, thing but this was after. Was that he wrote the book in Evansville while a professor at the University of Evansville? And the Tim Bailey story is true. In well, Tim not only that, he was also so he grew up the son of a pastor, a Lutheran pastor, and apparently he. So I read one of his obituaries from Christianity Today. And the guy who was talking about him discussed some of the things he got to know about Walt that other people didn't know. And um, one of them is that his childhood was pretty difficult and fairly abusive. In fact, there was apparently at one point his mother got so frustrated at him, she put him in a trash bag and threatened to leave him at the curb for the trash men to throw into their... And he was cut out of the bag by a neighbor when the neighbor saw the bag moving. So... Apparently, he had some pretty rough stuff that happened to him as a child, and yeah. his dad Where's he was, from? he was born in Portland, Oregon, but he moved all over the place. So, one of those kind of itinerant families. He was the oldest of seven children, but you can kind of get a picture of what his family, his mother, said. So I, I kept trying to find interviews from him about his childhood and couldn't find too much, but then I found that obituary. They mentioned that. Makes a lot of sense of things. I mean, he grew up in all sorts of places, Chicago, Fort Wayne, Indiana. They also were in Alberta, so they went to Canada. So I've heard, I mean, we all know kind of families like this. I'm guessing his dad was probably going from church to church, but when you have a pastor that's moving that much, you wonder, there's got to be something going on. Mm -hmm. Yep. So anyways, in 19, so he was born in 44, in 1968, he got his MA in English literature from Miami University. He never finished his PhD; just he got that. And then he also, but that to couple that, he got his MDiv from Concordia, no doubt. Yeah, and Christ Seminary Seminex, both in St. Louis, Missouri. How'd you know that? Because Lutheran. Lutheran. Yeah, he followed in his dad's footsteps for a while, from 70 to 91. As Jake said, he taught English at the University of Evansville. It was 19 in, years, huh? Yeah. Well, 21 years. 70 from, to 91. From when to when? Right, did right, did right, Jake right. and Wangerin intersect? Oh, yeah. Seven, 70 to 91, yeah. So you and probably Jake. 
egged his house or something, Jake. It's possible. Yeah. It's also possible I read some of, I think I remember reading uh, that he had a religious column in the Evansville Courier. Yeah. And as cruel was, as you are, it's it's possible that that one bad rooster was based on you. It's possible, yeah. You did put old man Wangren in a trash bag one time. <laughs> I did, yeah. I did that and I... Pretended to be his mom. <laughs> <laughs> I did, yeah. For a 10-year-old to do. And then I tortured this dog and released it at his house. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's all coming together. Who 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 knew we'd figure this out? Yeah, I was I was <laughs> seven when he moved. So, I, well, you've I moved on to greater to, torture then, but you were torturing a lot of dogs when you were seven. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my parents divorced by then, so yeah, I was just like off well, the rails doing. What's and, that, Brandon? You want to get things back on the rails? <laughs> I, I don't even know, guys. In '78, <laughs> when he published the Dung Cow, and so. If you look at the list of books, I'm pretty sure that was his first and his most successful, but we'll get to that in just a minute. And most of what I've read and listened to by him at the same time, well, as he was getting news that the Book of the Duncow had taken off. So he was an English major. He liked to write. He wanted to be a writer. So he wrote this book. It's based on, surprise, surprise, on Chaucer, his uh, Nun's Priest Tell, the Tell of Chanticleer. And... I don't know who did it better, him or Rockadoodle. Or Chaucer. Yeah, Chaucer, I don't think, is in the running. <laughs> <laughs> it's Rockadoodle, obviously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Chaucer. He's been dead long enough. Wangerin's barely cold, what man. About? What? Who's still alive? He said Wangerin's barely cold, and I said Paul Bettany's still alive. Paul, Paul Bettany is still alive. Is he the one who did Rockadoodle? <laughs> No, yep. no, he played <laughs> yeah. Chaucer in... Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I get it. He did That old 90s uh, rom-com, <laughs> A Knight's Tale, featuring Heath Ledger. You know? Yeah. That's an awesome pull I just made. That's the point. Yeah. Two <laughs> paths deserved to, to diverge in a root wood. Me and, me and Jake both had our own tangents we wanted to go down, <laughs> and they were both amazing. Um, well, hey, guys. Not only was he a professor, it's like he joined me and Jake in one personality because he was also a pastor. Ooh. <laughs> but he was an ELCA pastor. Yeah. He, every interview I saw from him. Count as pastors? Well, what's funny is every interview I read by him and he always talked about he was an inner city pastor of an African-American church. Oh, oh no, 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 no. And I'm like... No, 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 no. I know the church that he was a pastor of in Evansville. That is not an inner city black Well, for church. one, if, if anybody's ever been to Evansville, does Evansville Please. have an inner city? <laughs> yes. There's is it big enough that... to consider an inner city? I mean, there are government projects and there are yeah. street gangs and yeah, well, I guess, I, yeah. It's, it's not like... It's, it's, it's more than you imagine, yes. It, it's also... It's not Chicago or Detroit, but... Because when you say inner city, you think in you Indiana... Cabrini Green or something like that. Yeah, you're thinking that's, that's, maybe that's Gary or maybe Indianapolis yeah, not, might not, have an inner it's, city. It's not Gary. It's not Indy. There are parts of Evansville that you don't want to be in, in it. Well, yeah. But... I, I, Fort Wayne but yeah. would be the same way, but... Yes. It just seemed a little funny to me to be talking about... It'd be like saying that Bloomington no, 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 has no, no, an inner no. city. His... his, his his inner city church is the, it, it's actually 
the Near East Side, and it's a pretty it's a pretty gentrified area, and always has been. It's in the neighborhood of the University of Evansville, and one of the top private Catholic high schools in the area, and beautiful old houses, and it can only be considered. It's just that that's a joke. That's just a joke. Sorry. Trying to find this. I mean, I'll take you to the church that he was a pastor of. I'll, I will go yeah, make a so video. In his 20s, he led a church congregation with a different racial and social makeup than any he had known. That's from the obituary. Okay, he says so, here. So the population of Evansville is is 15% African American. Yeah. So if he's... Yeah, so here, this is from one of his interviews. When I wrote The Dung Cow, I was a pastor of an inner city African American church. That makes it sound like he came from like New York. <laughs> huh. Right? Am I am I wrong that when you use that sort of phrasing it makes it sound like at the very oh, yeah, least for, you were in There are a lot of inner city-ish African American churches in Evansville. They're not ELCA, they're not Lutheran, and they're just not this is Yeah. It's just and he gets a lot out of that and also the obituary makes a lot out of the fact that he well, here, in academic days, he joined a protest movement that formed a breakaway seminary in exile. In his 20s, he led a church congregation with a different racial and social makeup than any he had known. He chaired committee meetings, ministered to street people, negotiated a racially blended family. I tried to verify that, but I, I don't know if his wife is African-American. I don't know. And taught Bible and literature to cynical undergraduates. Ooh. On a, ooh, man, that is... That's the toughest thing he did right there. On a whim, he bought a farm where he spent many hours repairing fences, mowing grass. So he became that poet. And building a riding retreat reachable only by a trek on wooden planks across muddy fields. Each of these experiences found their way into his self-revealing books. I'm trying to picture this field situation. So what happens if you don't stand on the planks? Why can't you make it? It's almost like the mud? that don't break the ice game. Yeah, yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, that's that's awesome. <laughs> that's where I, that's where I want a writing retreat. Is this I, Philip Yancey's obit, by the way? I it think is. I saw that. He, it is okay. Yep, interesting. My benediction to the beloved. How did you know? Did you just find it? I I think the reason I r- realized Wangeran died is because I just googled Wangeran. I think maybe to get a picture for social media or something, yeah. and the first thing that came up was Philip Yancey's obit for Christianity Today, and I was like, oh. Whoops, I guess we're doing something timely. Who knew? Yeah. So anyway, so it's while he was doing this, being a pastor and a professor in the inner city of Evansville, that he wrote the book of the Dung Cow. I haven't really found too much about what inspired the thing. But anyways, I mean, he was an English major, and so he had to have known Chaucer, right? Did he do medieval studies or something? Like, did, did he have any expertise? And uh, That's the thing is he's very, it's, he talks a lot about his life after Dunkel, and he talks a lot about the book and things like that. I've got some things we can read, but he's pretty silent on a lot as well. It's kind of weird. I think he must be a pretty private, well, must have been a pretty private guy. It's kind of implied in that Philip Yancey for his obituary. Myth-making. Yes, except for the myth-making. So anyways, this book, he publishes it. Here's kind of, so when I wrote that, I was a pastor of an inner city African-American church. I published through Harper Junior Books. And they did an auction. I only discovered later that when Simon and Schuster bought it from paperback, that was the highest price ever paid for a children's book to be purchased that way. 
It was also nominated for the National Book Award. I truly did not understand what was going on. I received a list from New York of books that they wanted from New York of book. I received a list from New York of books that they wanted me to respond to, whether I liked them and what I thought. So I thought I was simply being asked to be a judge. I didn't know that my book was up for a prize. And then he heard that he got the prize. And it changed his life. After that, he decides he wanted to be a writer. But he also has a pretty successful speaking career as well after that, and then publishes some other novels. You can find a lot of his interviews. The benefit of him having been alive as of a few days ago is that there's quite a bit of video of him. And so you can go and kind of get a taste for what he's like. Kind of urbane, witty. In a likable way or a kind of off-putting, smug way? Not too off-putting. He's... I think he's what you would expect. He's he's actually what I think if you took kind of a, an intelligent-looking older man and told them to... It's like guys who go off to Brown County in Indiana and become rock artists, the sort of mentality and way that they have of speaking. Yep. A little bit affected, mm-hmm. but you get the sense that they feel like that's what they have to do if they're going to live that life. If you go to any poetry reading with people who aren't professional poets it's the same thing they all try to act the same way oh man mm-hmm. you know what i'm talking about drives me nuts yeah mm-hmm. a little bit of a lilt to your voice a little it's really trying to be witty and clever but at the same time deep and profound and bring some the sort words of mis- all have a rich resonance and uh yeah. they taste like something in your mouth kind of yeah. an a- affectation mm-hmm. got your jacket with the patches and yeah, and the only person who could pull that off was Seamus Heaney because he was Irish, man. And that Irish accent, you can do whatever you want with it. Yep. Well, it also just helps if you look and sound like death. I mean, honestly, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Unless if, you're if, it, if it feels like life has beat Johnny the crap Cash. out of you then, and you've yeah. drank a bunch, then, yeah. then you, get, you get to behave that way. Johnny Cash is actually a good example of that sort of thing. But anyway, so it was successful. This is from an interview and this is... The reasons he thinks it was successful. I think number one, that it is genuinely well-written and that it tells a story that people would want to know the end to. Also, there's a nice balance between that which is spiritual and humorous. The animals really are human. This goes all the way back to medieval writing. So he, he must have had some fondness for medieval writing. When you wanted to write about a person, you would take an animal that had human characteristics and allow that characteristic to exaggerate the man. That creates a kind of humor that is both ironic and at the same time affectionate and forgiving. The whole use of animals allows for all kinds of imagination. I took the elemental story. Say what? I just want to affirm that that's all true and that is part of the charm of what he does. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The whole use of animals allows for all kinds of imagination. I took the elemental story of good fighting evil where evil is not absolutely evil and good is not absolutely good. Either and within that, of course, the love between husband and wife and of children who die and that, what that does to you. It was not a long book, but it dealt with the elemental questions and elemental perceptions of our human existence in a very palatable way. So that's his take on his own book. So he became he very, Im- yeah, he became fairly involved later on with, there was the Chrysostom movement, which is a group of writers, or Chrysostom group, which is like a group of Christian writers who gathered together to encourage one another. Philip Yancey was part of it. And then he also a frequent publisher on The Rabbit Room. I'm sure people have heard of that. Winger and published at The Rabbit Room? Yeah, he had a book published by Rabbit Room Press. Huh. He feels like a big get for them, but yeah, no offense to The Rabbit Room. Is that uh, Peterson? 
That's Andrew Peterson. Yeah, it's Peterson, and that's where the Green Ember stuff, Scott Smith or whatever his name is, originated, I'm pretty sure. Hmm. And so... Holocaust denier Scott Smith. Is he really? The author of... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's what Brandon was saying the other day. That's right. I forgot how much I'm supposed to hate that guy. S.D. Smith, yeah. But I think the S is Scott. could be wrong. So, anyways, he became kind of one of those important figures in Christian writing. Nathan already mentioned he wrote some um, retellings of the Bible stories. He did point out in one of his interviews that he set himself the rules of never adding to Scripture. So, he never, like, if he was telling about Jesus, he didn't want to do, like, Jose Saramago with the gospel of according to Jesus Christ which is sacrilegious. Have either of you read that? No. It's pretty awful. But instead, he wanted to limit himself so if he was going to have Jesus as a character, he could only take things that actually the Bible said about Jesus. And so his challenge was to find new perspectives. And so he wrote from the viewpoint of some of the apostles, or things like that. But there is a strange mysticism that runs through a lot of his stuff. And it, it's not that surprising, especially since he was a Lutheran that that element would be there, and you see it a bit in this book as well. So, he fits in with what you would kind of assume a Christianity Today or a rabbit room would draw be drawn towards mm-hmm. as far as, I think, his faith and his art. So, But he definitely became, I mean, as far as Christian writers, you know, we talk about how Christians rarely actually achieve greatness, it seems, today in their art Mm -hmm. because they are always terrified of i don't know you get those goofy movies by what's his face god is not dead and that kind of stuff yeah part seven because they feel that i guess it's because they feel that storytelling has to be the same as uh, evangelism right and that they can't just tell a good story and that they don't realize that it actually is Uh, God gave us the gift of storytelling, and we love stories because he gave that to us. And in the end, Wangren seemed to really understand that in a way that got to people beyond Christians because the National Book Award is a big thing, and they gave it to him. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure that he ever lived up to it with any of his other works, but I've never read any of his other works, so I don't know. That's up for other people to tell us. Well, I admire you saying that was his rule about his Bible writing, but it certainly did restrict what he was able to do with those. And I'm not sure how he applied it across the board when he was writing things like Paul, a novel or Jesus, a novel, which are two of his other works. Yeah. I don't know if he became like a lot of people do softer in his older age and begin to become more liberal. I don't know. I do not know. Who's the, Oh man, my brain's not working right now. The theologian that everybody loved who went off the rails towards the end. He wrote... You mean John Stott? Someone else. I think he just recently died, too. Packer? Packer. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. But yeah. Trying to think if there's anything else I wanted to say. I guess the only other thing I would say is that not only did he write fiction, but he wrote a variety of things. He won some awards. I think he won the New York Times Children's Book Award for one of his children's stories. So, he, I mean, he was a serious writer, and he got serious respect in the writing community. He also wrote some poetry. And so, I don't know, this book left me wondering, and I'm, I'm curious, I think, to try some of his other stuff. 
he's an interesting figure for sure. And I kind of wish that I had tried to take the opportunity to, to at least met him. But since he was here in our state, I get apparently he tried to start a commune that our pastor was going to be a part of. <laughs> so, I mean, the guy, the guy was a bit of a weirdo. You, he was a little tell, bit of a goofball. He was, he was trying to stylize his life in that, in this, in the way that some of these conservative Christian writers will do, such as that poet that they all love. What's his name? Wendell Berry. <clears throat> Thank Wendell you. Berry. Wendell Berry. <laughs> he they all looks love. the part when you pull up. He's got a white beard and a very urbane yeah. looking man. And so there's sort of a, like Jake was saying, a sort of self-mythologizing that goes in with being one of these writers. And I'm sure that partly it just can't be helped. I mean, if you have a book that's obviously going to be remembered beyond your life, I'm sure the temptation would be there to start self-mythologizing. Get your house in the countryside so people who come and meet you will be like, wow, this is where a writer would live. <laughs> yeah. There's a sense in which, because this guy claims Christ, I think we're probably tempted to be a little harder on him. Like if, if Hemingway was doing all the same stuff, we just wouldn't even blink. It wouldn't even. Yeah, that's what I mean, basically. Yeah, because Hemingway definitely did that same stuff. Well, yeah, Hemingway. Yeah. Probably a silly comparison point because he's so much that way, but. He escalated uh, it to 100. All right. The, the prophet's not welcome in his hometown. This guy lives down the street from me. And yeah. I don't, my capacity for patience with his pretensions is a lot smaller than it would be for other people. Yeah, if he was a New York guy, maybe we'd be like, ah, maybe some of them are urbane, but we're like, we know you, Wangy. We, we know everybody here in the Midwest. You're not that urbane. Yeah. All right, you guys want to hear a Christmas poem by Walter Wangeran Jr.? Let's hear it. Yeah. This is, this is just the first thing that popped up when I typed in Wangeran Poetry. This is in Reformed Journal. For the twelfth night, <clears throat> sing softly the cherries, red, red, sweet and good. Sing apples and oranges, the cinnamon food. Dance swiftly the cider. Spin more than you know, for liquor and laughter will lighten your load. Declaim the roast turkey and riddle the sauce. Potatoes are stories of fortune and loss. Pipe merrily carrots, drum beats till they bleed. They root down to darkness, who started as seed. Oh, candy, the greetings you give to your guests. The wassail is fleeting and life ends in death. So taffy your handshake and ginger the kiss. Bake huggings like muffins, a brave Eucharist. Be feast for our Christmas and all be the food. Beg Christ to assist us in everything good. Well, let's say he should have stuck to fiction. Yeah. I thought it was kind of cool. <laughs> Did you really? What was the thing about potatoes or sad listen, stories? Or this, something? this is this is what okay. was bleeding. Something was bleeding in there. Carrots. I think the carrots were bleeding. Uh, it might help if you look at it. He's swinging for the fences, and I think it's probably a foul ball or maybe just a strikeout. But I'm pulling it up right here. I, I appreciate the fact that he he really went for something there. He he had this weird food metaphor like. Uh, the food personification thing going and I just committed the minute that you tie it to the Eucharist you can just make anything I just anything I just opened it up Nathan and it's not helping sorry (laughs) I'm not saying it's good all right let me this let me tell you the part that I like and 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 like is let's be clear an incredibly strong word here but I'm just gonna be the resident defender of this uh 
Okay, so pipe merrily, carrots, drum beats till they bleed. That you like that? No, no, no. That's an example of what I don't like. Now okay, let me compare good. it to if it was all more like, so taffy your handshake and ginger the kiss. That's kind of good. But then it goes to bake huggings like muffins, a brave Eucharist. That's, that's <laughs> oh, not as good. See, he shoots himself right there. Well, yeah, that's where it gets really rabbit roomy and kind of... Uh, feast my spiritual friends kind of oh come know me better man come know me butter man (laughs) yes come know me butter man that's what this pump should have been called i think the feast for our christmas and i'll be the food (laughs) what (laughs) beg christ to assist us i like rhyming christmas with assist us (laughs) <laughs> and everything hey. is the very british thing of like food and good and he did he had an earlier slant rhyme like that too where or it's Guests not even a slant death. rhyme it's a it's a twist where you have to be speaking in a different accent for the rhyme to work should and load spend yeah. more than you showed for liquor and laughter will lighten your load it doesn't help so taffy your handshake and ginger the kiss bake uggings like muffins a brave eucharist you guys like it now? Yeah, the more cockney it goes, the better it gets. <laughs> if, only, if, if, only, if only Bert, if, if only old Bert, what's his face? Bert, Dick Van Dyke? Dick Van Dyke, we're performing it. <laughs> then I could get behind it. Pipe merrily carrots, drum beats till they bleed. They root I mean, down to darkness who started a seed. So this guy... <laughs> So one thing that he says in one of his interviews is that editors asked him to tone down some of his overwriting with later books. And that wait, wait, wait. is because the, the Dunkow was overwritten or because he felt the need to overwrite after the Dunkow? Because the Dunkow is not overwritten. Just uh, the heightened style of the Dunkow is what they complained about. I would say the Dunkow could be simmered down by about 2% and it wouldn't hurt anything. It's, it's yeah. on the cusp oh. of overwritten. Yeah. Oh, come on. But it's like... It's. We've know. forgiven I, I a lot it. more in like a Ray Bradbury or somebody. I'm not. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's not bad. I'm just saying. Yeah, Ray Bradbury's bad. a thousand times more purple than this. This is I this agree. suits the mythological aspirations of the book. Yeah, he went he went for a medieval style, and that's what he that's what I, he got. Some of the I, I give it to him. Yeah, give, some of the, I give the poetry of the Dunkow to him a thousand times more than I give him the poetry of his Christmas poem. Well, I give the style of the Dunkow to him and. That's all I mean. Yeah, I know. That's all you mean. Declaim and the I roast give... turkey and riddle the sauce. One of my critics. are stories of fortune and loss. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I don't, I don't understand why you don't like that. Potato, potatoes are the stories of fortune and loss. I think that's my favorite. Oh my I goodness. mean, according to the Irish with the potato oh. famine, I guess so. Is that Declaim what he means? Declaim the roast turkey and riddle the sauce. Potatoes so are stories. A fortune and loss. I mean, potatoes are stories of fortune and loss. <laughs> oh man, can we just write the book that's called "Potatoes Are Stories of Fortune and Loss" and it's just some crappy cookbook or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? Why not? I mean, especially if we invest all of our fortune into this book and don't make anything back. I tried, Walter. It's a bad poem, but. I gave it the old college try. I, I think there's a glimmer of a spark of a something there, but uh, yeah. it would it would have to take itself a whole lot less seriously. 
and, and not have to have bring the Eucharist into it. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing. That is so. With the Dun Cow, he struck the right moment, the right story for what I think was probably what his natural style is, which is a little bit medieval, a little bit highly wrought, a little bit ornate. Mm-hmm. And you can see it in some of the dialogue. Some of the dialogue doesn't quite kind of bothered me in the Dun Cow, which didn't surprise me with someone who's more interested in like a style. Usually they're not that great at dialogue. Does that make sense? Did, question. Did you, did you read it or did you listen? I read it. Okay. And then anyways, usually, so C.S. Lewis could kind of do the same things at times, even though he, I think he was a better stylist by far. But all that to say, they get this notion of what poetry sounds like, and then they just cannot write a good poem to save their life. Yep. And that is what's happened here. I mean, if you look at the Carol, the Joseph and Mary one after that, it's just as bad. <laughs> I, I didn't dare. Yeah, if, 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 to be fair to Walter Weingren, if he is a bad poet, that puts him in company with G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, and uh, I would go so far as to say Mr. Tolkien, but I am cruel and whatever the other thing yeah, is. I think I you am. might be right. Kenneth Copeland in drag or something. Yeah, I am Kenneth Copeland in drag. Well, let me let me try this one. Let's just... <laughs> the Carol of Warm and Cold. Mary, she blows on her knuckle. The wind so cold. The night and the snow. Mary, she blows on her knuckle bone. While Joseph... <laughs> it was... It told, he added the word bone. I was with him. While Joseph, he blows on the coal. The donkey that bore the young mother... Sing lullabies on perilous ice. The donkey that bore the young mother bore the bearer of Jesus the Christ. <laughs> Mary. Sorry. I'm going to mute myself. Keep going. <laughs> Mary, she hasn't the ticking. Cold stone the floor and wind at the door. Mary, she hasn't a mattress for catching her baby and Lord. Joseph, he doff his warm clothing. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph man, he doff his warm clothes. Oh my goodness. And binds the hay, a cradle creating. Joseph, he makes of his woolen robe, swaddling sheets for the babe. We are the watchers who watch them. Two cries at night, one pain, one delight. We are the watchers when Mary breathes breath in the infant and life. We are the beasts and the singers. Ba, ba, Gloria. We are the hosts and the herders who... See and remember the sight. While Mary, she blows on the baby. The wind so cold, the night in the snow. Mary, she kisses her baby's toes. And Joseph, he brightens the coal. Yeah, the idea of what poetry is got in the way of what could have been a great poem here. That's my take on that. I see more in that than the other one. I see the same thing, which is conceptually, he's good. I think in both cases, he has an interesting idea that he wants to do. And he's just... Sure, but he has no idea of how poetry functions well. Yes, yes. I would not argue otherwise. Joseph, he doff his warm clothing. My guess is this guy read just, I mean, he had his handful of poets he would read, but poetry really wasn't his thing. And so, I mean, what I've But once enough people told him that he was a writer. Yep. Well, why not? In it, look, why not try your hand at poetry? If you've written a world famous novel, why not? It's a good exercise, and if somebody's going to publish it, great, and it's on them, not on you, and if it yeah. got published on the strength of your name, and they published crap because it has your name by it, then, I mean, he just got betrayed by people. I think who, that's fair. 
I, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's probably kind of mean to make fun of the guy for this. You know, what's we're, funny is I, I just, I just noticed if you put in Walter Wenger in poems, one of the first thing that comes up is Goodreads page for his book of poems called a miniature cathedral and other poems. Nobody likes his poetry. This book has two and a half stars. And the first review says, this is unfortunately a terrible book. Wangerin is brilliant and rightly famous for his fiction and nonfiction, but these poems are trite, dull, and often even silly, but no need to dwell on it at length. And then the next review says, uh. poetry is not Wangerin's forte. Give this one a pass and read his fiction and practical theology. Um, 100%. And it goes well, on. Well, I don't know about his practical theology, but... <laughs> even even Wangerin's fans don't like his poetry, so... Yeah. Yes. Fair enough. So then we should just... This yeah. a little footnote and we'll move on. But Jake's right. A lot of these fiction writers, well, it's like, who's that woman everybody's in love with right now? She wrote the- Marilyn Robinson. Well, not Marilyn Robinson. The, she's the liberal. She wrote the one about patriarchy and how awful it is oh, from Canada. Thing? Yeah. She's oh, got Martin. poems. And now every time she sneezes on a napkin, the New Yorker publishes it as poetry. And it's bad. I'm pretty sure it might be worse than this stuff that Walt Wanger in here is producing. And yet the New Yorker's publishing it. Yeah, and it's just like once you have once you've lost standards and everything becomes about personalities, it gets hard. Yeah. And it's it's why like people read Chesterton's poetry because Chesterton was Chesterton. Mm-hmm. Well he's a bad poet. Yeah, he was. But he was a great wit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I don't fault him for writing poetry. It probably helped him be a great wit. And and I don't know how much I fault people trying to make a couple bucks off of his poetry on the strength of his name, but they did no service to his legacy. No, the only people it. that I'm irritated with are the people that love Chesterton and therefore have to defend the poetry when it's self-evidently bad. It's like, like people who defend how much, Lewis's how, poetry. And- how much self-awareness are you actually able to have about everything you do? I mean, there's a certain degree of humility as a writer, as an author. I mean, I have published poetry and songs that I've written and all kinds of things that I've done. And how much self-awareness am I supposed to have about all of it? You know, if people like it and are affirming it and want to publish it here and there and in other places, like there's a certain aspect of humility that says, I I don't get to be the one that decides that this is good or bad. Yep. And I leave that in other people's hands and apparently people buy it or don't or whatever. So yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. Often it's hard to have perspective on everything we'll just you send do. send it to the publisher. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's in their hands. If they publish it, they thought it was good. My, my, my assumption is they thought it was good enough. Okay, cool. And not, well, he's made a name for himself and this will sell copies. Well, and even also, though it's crap. Like, you know, and, and and I might even have an exchange that, no, this is not nothing that would actually happen. But like, you know, you can imagine somebody having the exchange with the editor. Look, if it's really garbage, please don't publish it. Like, I like it. It was a fun exercise. It was cool. I did a thing. I don't know. If it's crap, please don't. And then, you know, well, you know, he's made the national books thing and will sell copies. He's got a lot of fans. People love. Yep. I mean, I if you're producing the any, the ground, that's all. any kind of content that you're producing, it could be podcasts, it could be poetry, it could be anything. At a certain point, you're just going to have to say, well, it speaks to me, so let's put it out there and see if it speaks to anybody else. And 
your judgment's going to be uh, if you're good, seventy percent maybe. But a lot of times, the things that sort of speak to you are the things that really speak to somebody else, and the things that really speak to you are like the things that people to, yeah. people have the hardest time kind of entering into. It's like yeah. that's just the creative process. Well, yeah, it's even like, I mean, uh, pastors talk about this all the time. You get up into the pulpit and you preach a sermon and you think, man, that really spoke to me. I really feel like God was with me and kind of knocked that out of the park. And everybody's like, "Uh uh-huh, thanks for the good word, Rev. Yeah, and nobody remembers the thing that you had to say. And then you get up, you know, the next week and you feel really bad about everything you said and don't feel like anything can connected or you were connecting the dots or just like and people are like wow like man that was really powerful like god spoke to me through that and you're just like you know what all of this is in god's hands and what am i to do i'm just trying to do my best up here every week and yep i I would say i mean speaking very broadly because we're including like novel writers and pastors and everybody in between in this but in any kind of performative medium i think the times when you're perfectly satisfied with something and everyone else is perfectly satisfied with it at the same time. Those are really r- pretty rare. Usually you're like, I tried really hard on this. And they're like, yay. Or you're like, man, this is some of my best work. And they're like, eh, yeah. great. Thanks. Well, Walter Wangren, you wrote a better novel than you did crappy Christmas poetry. Also, let's not forget this, the, this particular publisher was Reformed Journal. They were probably just happy to publish something that had Walter Wangren's name in it. They probably didn't uh, help him. And something you know. that had some level of artistry to it, if we're talking about a reformed journal. Right. Well, and plus, yeah. uh, since Brandon brought up The New Yorker, Walter Wangren's poetry is better than most of the poetry there. I mean, at the, least the, you yeah, can see what he was trying to do. He had the like, New Yorker's a, pretty, been pretty bad lately. I haven't seen a good poem there for years now probably but yeah i don't get it regularly these days so maybe there's maybe one sneaks in occasionally i don't know you know whose poetry i like is brandon's poetry he he wrote some good published irish catholic poetry that i really like oh yeah thank you sorry i was trying to see if there's anything from the new yorker recently that i liked i still have the new yorker and it's because i've been kind of obsessed with the personal essay lately and they still can do a good personal essay occasionally I mean, they are the pre- premier, but they sure cannot publish. It. They pretty ca- they cannot publish a good poem to save their life. Yeah, this is just crap. But hers, yeah, you should look up whatever her name is and just Margaret Atwood. Yeah, it's bad, and I don't know why they published it. It's really bad. It's just all political. I mean, I'm sorry that's a kind of obvious hacky statement to say, but it's just simply true. <sighs> well. Anybody got anything else about Mr. Wangerin before we, Professor no. Wangerin, Pastor Wangerin? <sighs> All right, Jay, you're going to have to stay on pins and needles for one more week because we're not going to really figure out what we think about this book until next This time. book's going to get three weeks. Yeah. Nice. Yep. I mean. <laughs> this week wasn't really much of anything, but last week was. was last week was phenomenal. Yeah. Yep. Pinnacle of of substance on the beginning. Yes, I called last week the prelude. Okay, well, speaking of Walter Wangerin, that's a name, and other people have names. Yeah, 
Sorry, I've got one of her poems here. I'm not reading it, but she just oh, went just, the. Just go ahead and read it. She just went the opposite direction of so he like thought that if you threw some things and put some meter and a little bit of an attempt at rhyme that, and some deep thought behind mm-hmm. it that that makes a poem. Some tactile imagery. Unfortunately, that doesn't make a poem. It makes the skeleton of what could become a poem. I think that being fair to him, like you said, Nathan and Jake, you with the last poem, if he workshopped the thing, he had something he could work with. Yeah, I think he's got a fine first draft, and I would even say that for the food one. In other words, he had a sense of what was literary and what could work. He just wasn't a poet. He was a fiction writer, and poetry is a craft that, yeah, they're, they're not the same thing. So... Things wear out, also fingers. Gnarling sets in. Your hands crouch in their mittens. Forget chopsticks and buttons. That's the opening stanza. Feet have their own agendas. They scorn your taste in shoes and ignore your trails, your maps. Ears are superfluous. What are they for, those alien pink flaps? Skull fungus. <laughs> this is good stuff. I mean, I don't know what I was saying. The body, once your accomplice, is now your trap. The sunrise makes you wince. Too bright, too flamingo. After a lifetime of tangling, of knotted snares and lace work, oh, there's some hope for feminism coming in, mm. of purple headspace tornadoes and with their heart trace and rubble, you crave the end of mazes. And see, this is where it gets into that. If you can make it sound like you're saying something esoteric, then everybody will think that you're saying something smart. With their heart race and rubble, you crave the end of mazes and pray for a white shore, an ocean with its horizon, not so much bliss, but a flat line you steer for. No more hiss and slosh, no reefs, no deeps, no throat rattle of gravel. It sounds like this. I get it. She's old and wants to die. <laughs> so it's actually kind of sad. <laughs> if she wants to die, she'd better do it. And decrease Steering the for the population. flat line. Yeah. Oh, oh well. my goodness. Wow. Yeah. So profound. So, uh, so deep. I mean, I think it was fine as a little uh, piece of prose. If you wanted but to But why is the New novels. Yorker publishing it? That's the thing. Yeah, no. The New Yorker is supposed to be the standard the of premier. what's... premier. Yeah. Yes, I agree. I agree. I agree with you, Nathan. It's not the worst thing I've ever read. It is the standard of all modern aesthetics. That's yeah. what the New Yorker is and should be. Mm-hmm. Yes. Any any one of those sentences would be just fine in a novel, but... I like and the so, flatline idea. Yeah. Yeah, the, I mean... The horizon as the flatline working together with... Yeah, so none, none, of it, none of it's horrible. But Kevin Young should be ashamed of himself for choosing to publish that over some other poet out there who's actually wanting to get their name made at, by the New Yorker, which is what the New Yorker used to do for poets. And now yeah, instead, it just go out there and find good poetry, and or it publishes the actual life. best poets. Instead, now they've become political and stupid. And I th- Kevin Young should be ashamed of himself. And he doesn't deserve to be their just, editor. Just, just personality driven. Would this poem have yeah. been published if *Handmaid's Tale* wasn't a popular TV show? No. I submit to you, it would not. It does have the line skull fungus, though. So Pink yeah. ear flaps. It's talking about pink ear, ear pink ear flaps. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Alien pink flaps. Alien pink flaps. Ears are superfluous. What are they for? Those alien pink flaps. Skull fungus. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Man. I don't know if any, any anybody can ever write a stanza quite that majestic. I dare say no one can write a stanza. On that exact level of majesty. Can we rename this podcast Skull Fungus? What do you guys think? <laughs> I think that'd, be, that'd be great. You know, you got the he- ear- earphones that are the Skull Candy. We're the Skull Fungus. Kenneth Copeland's Skull Fungus. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Is this going to be one of our longest episodes? 
No. No, we've we've gone two or three hours before. <laughs> we're we're not anywhere close to that, but it's gonna be like an hour long. Yeah. People um, are gonna get gold out of this. I can say I can tell you this. The context for Walter Wangeran went longer than I thought it would. Yeah, well, he's kind of interesting to talk about. He is. I I I found him pretty fascinating. Do you think we hurt Jay's feelings in this episode? I don't think we were unnecessarily mean to the guy. No, we we laughed at some of his foibles, but I think Jay would laugh at the same foibles. Yep. You think our patrons would would let us off with going to bed instead of calling out their names this this time cuz you guys are both I would appreciate it if they would. <laughs> yeah, me too. We all love you patrons. All right, skull fungus, my skull fungus. Can that soul, be the name of our fans? Our skull, skull fung- fungus. All right, skull fungi. The booking guys are saying good night to the skull fungi. Black cat just walked across my path. That's like 7 years of bad luck, isn't it? Yep. Oh, you're going to die tonight, Nathan. Sorry. <laughs> Wow, that's that's really bad luck. <laughs> that's like the worst luck you can have. Ah oh, man, not well, if you're Margaret Atwood. I own a black cat named Margaret Atwood. No, Minerva. But you owned a black cat called Margaret Atwood. You took it down to the river. Yep, in a bag. In a bag. That cat's named Minerva. My cat's name is Minerva. Yeah. Yeah, named after the greatest school teacher to have ever existed. That's right. Call and the nickname. Minnie. Mini. Mini, yeah. I think that's cute. We have a barn cat named Moby. Named after the whale? Yes, the whale. Oh, good. I thought you were about to make the same joke everybody makes. Named after the DJ? Oh, thanks. Yeah. Brandon is a bald DJ that- uh, I am. I am actually Moby the DJ. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Jake, Jake was offended by that. <laughs> he's he's actually- <laughs> Sayonara, guys. <laughs> <laughs> forget you guys <laughs> oh there he is did Minnie just kick yeah, you out my my cat kicked me out we, we made that bad Moby joke and we thought you were just like alright <laughs> here. that's enough <laughs> it's a bridge I'm, too far I'm <laughs> tired I gotta go to bed I'm done hey no, that gotta... one album that really popular album that hit in the late ni- 90s early oddies like the Moby album that album ruled. Where we got the where we got what's his face dancing? Yeah, yeah. That that was a cool album. I don't mind saying, and I'm sure that's a very lame stream of opinion, but I, I I can't really comment on that album. I never owned it or anything like that. Which I, album? I don't know. It's like it was the it was the popular Moby album. I think maybe the end song for Born, all the Born uh, movies, probably comes from it. Among other things, you'd you'd know like all of it. I mean, yeah, I know some Moby songs. If you heard it, anyway, let's be done. Let's Good- be done. Bye, yeah. listeners. Goodbye. Goodbye.